We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, Dear Prudence listeners. I want you to know that I, Dear Prudence, Danny M. Lavery, will be answering questions at a live Dear Prudence episode in Brooklyn on April 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Go to slate.com forward slash live and get your tickets now. And then I'll see you at the Bell House in Brooklyn and we'll all be in this together. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Danny M. Lavery. Uh, my guest is already laughing at me, which is a great sign. Uh, with me in the studio this week is uh, Farron Krenzel, an editorial director of The Newsette, an editor at large for L.com, where she explores collisions between fashion and female identity. She's written pieces for Vogue, Bazaar, Elle, The Cut, InStyle, and Nylon, and just finished her first novel. I'm not going to call it a total disaster. It's a disaster. It is. Uh, I'd have to (laughs) fact check that. She lives in New York City with her life partner, a vintage leopard print coat from Paris. Farron, welcome to the show. Danny, I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. You you are already clearly enjoying yourself. Oh my God, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> Simply my saying my own name caused you to laugh and laugh and laugh. I freaked out. I freaked out. This is as good as the first time I got to go to a Prada show. I'm not going to lie. We'll talk about Prada later, I okay. promise you. Um, but that's deeply, deeply thrilling. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very excited to see how we're able to carry this energy into today's questions, which are... Uh, Definite doozies. Kind of heavy. They are, yeah, yeah. They're not all like totally distressing and unfixable. No, they kind of are. But they're <laughs> they're intense. There's not a lot of light ones in the bunch. Yeah. So I'll take our first question. The subject is, I found out my boyfriend did blackface in college. Dear Prudence, I am black and my boyfriend is a non-black person of color. In a discussion with some friends about costumes, my boyfriend, he's 30, casually revealed he did blackface in college when he dressed up as a popular rapper. I am black, and when I expressed my shock and disappointment, he attempted to explain it away as part of the costume and, quote, not meant to be racist, but to make the costume more accurate. I know people do stupid things in college, but his attempt to defend his actions really upset me. He later said he understands why it was so wrong, that he feels ashamed, and would never do something like that again, but I can't help but feel really hurt by it. What if other people found out? What would they think of me, a black woman, being with a man who did something like this? What do I do? How do I have a productive conversation about this with my boyfriend? Wow. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on here, and obviously, like, I want to preface this with, you know, I am white. As am I. You are allowed to make whatever decisions and choices feels right for you. Yep. But I think the first thing that I want to talk about is the way that you found out about this, um, which was not that your boyfriend said, hey, I've thought a lot about this. I'm really ashamed. I know it was wrong. I dressed up in blackface in college. You found out in a casual conversation with a bunch of friends. With other people. Yeah. So 
if he is ashamed of it, that did not come through in the way that he told you. So wherever this shame is coming from, it seems um, either it's brand spanking new or it is, um, I, I don't want to say totally disingenuous. You want to say performative. I, I forget. I feel like I've recently remembered that like performative doesn't actually mean just pretending. So I don't. I don't, don't know if I want to use that word because it might not be the right usage. But I think part of why you're so distressed right now is this real switch from mm-hmm. this funny anecdote I want to tell about college until he realized how upset you were. And then he pivoted immediately to, I'm ashamed. Uh, I- I'd never do that again. And so I think part of the reason that that hurts on top of the fact that blackface is wrong and he shouldn't have done it is this sense that if he is ashamed, it's only because he's worried about getting in trouble. With you, See, that's interesting because I read another optic in this. Uh-huh. I read all of that, but I also heard something because your first question isn't, what if I can't get past this? What if every time I look at him, this is what I see? Your mm-hmm. first question is, what if people found out? Mm-hmm. And that to me is really interesting. Um, and to me, it also suggests that you yourself— there might be a dissonance mm. between what you yourself are thinking about this and having to explain it to other people as if this is going to be part of, you know, your engagement toast, uh, which it's not. Right. And luckily, they're not engaged. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we at least don't have to worry about Sorry that Sorry to right jump now. the gun on that one. I did live in the South for many years. Um, but <laughs> um, so the first thing that it, it sounds a little bit like this letter is asking for permission to be upset you have so much permission to be upset. Be upset. This is upsetting. Second thing, what if people find out? What if the world falls over? Don't worry about the people. Worry about you. I, I I hear that. I think I think that's the right push, which is that like your response matters more than what other people might Way think. Way more. You're the person in this relationship. You're the person who's affected by blackface. You're the person whose partner has not had a productive conversation with yet. Right. Um, but I, I also think maybe pay attention if there's a part of you that thinks if other people heard about this, uh, they would not be inclined to give him um, a lot of wiggle room or a lot of, hey, I'm sure you have learned from it, but they might take it seriously. Yep. And maybe there's a part of you that feels like it, it, it's not enough for me to feel that on my own behalf. And so I just okay. – if that is a dynamic here, I want you to give yourself permission to just say like – the, the the person here who did something wrong is your partner. Right. Um, the person who should be this level of distressed, uncertain, not uncertain, but like, what do I do next? The person who should be wrestling with this is him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So part of my concern is that you are taking this more seriously than he is. That and he at first was like, well, what are you going to do? You know, it was college. And then when he realized that you were upset, he, he shifted to, gosh, I'm really ashamed but it doesn't sound like he's said anything else about it or apologized further or talked about, like, how he came to understand that it was wrong and right. why he would never do it again and what he has done in his own life to try to make a sort of living amends. Right. So I, I guess in terms of productive conversation, you can't be productive for him. So I think the most important thing that I would encourage you to do right now is really let yourself be upset and angry on your own behalf and really ask yourself, what would I need to see from him 
to feel confident that he's not just trying to placate me. Right. To feel confident that he's truly, truly remorseful and that he would never do this again and that he's not going to try to justify it by saying, I really had to do it to look like, like the fact that he tried to defend it by saying like, I well, wanted to be accurate. Right, I had to do blackface <laughs> yeah, because no, I wanted to wear blackface is such a circular, ridiculous it's not a defense. Or blaming it on accuracy. Like, no, right. absolutely not. That's not accurate. That's yeah. offensive. Yeah. Um, I guess something that struck me about this question and something that is both easy and hard to bring up in the context of, you know, two people committed to justice but who admittedly don't have the experience of being a person of color is— And I think importantly here, a, a black woman. Yeah. Right? Because her, her her boyfriend is a person of color. So the specific issue here is, is her blackness. a black woman. So what I would say and what I talk about a lot with my, my friends who are black women is that line between feeling like you have to do all the work so other people get it— mm-hmm which is exhausting and unfair and not necessary, <laughs> and making sure that people have space to learn to get it if they're close enough in your life that you want to allow them to share and to learn from your experiences. But this dude is your boyfriend. He's not in your college class. Right. Um, you're not his professor. You're supposed to be his peer. If he's not coming to you saying, can we talk about this again? I I want to move past it. Here's what I'd like to do. What would you like to do? That's a tough a tough roadblock. Do you think she should move forward and say, sit down, we're going to talk about this? You know, I mean, I, mostly what I want this letter writer is to feel like she has a lot of options. Yeah. And the burden of figuring out how to try to make this right does not have to fall upon her. Yeah. But, but really, I would say... Do not push yourself to um, fix this for him um, and and take your own feelings here really seriously. And it is also okay. He may genuinely, as a result of this, come to feel real genuine remorse. He may stop speaking about it casually. He may stop attempting to defend it. All that can be true, and you could still decide, you know what? Good for you that you're growing and learning. You don't want but to be a part of it. But this has also, you know, broken the trust between us. Yeah. And it— means that I just don't feel comfortable and, and emotionally safe in this relationship. Um, and that's okay, too. Other people can learn and grow from their mistakes or their acts of racism, but that doesn't mean that you are then obligated to swallow your own feelings about something that they've done. So I, I would say ask yourself, do I trust him? Do I believe that in the last at least eight years since he was in college, he has thought about this thoughtfully, carefully, in a way that takes seriously, you know, my life and my experience as a black woman? And if the answer to that is no, I think for you, it might just be time to say, do I want to be in a relationship under those conditions? And and that is not an overreaction. That's not prohibiting somebody else from growing. That's not being judgmental or or living in the past. That's just taking really seriously what your boyfriend told you. And I just want to stress again, he told you in front of a bunch of other people super casually. That's really hurtful. Um, I, I can't imagine how just like it must have felt in that moment to just feel like, oh, holy shit, it's just this fun chat between all of these people. And here I am feeling my stomach drop. And and he did that when he was 30, not when he was in college. And I also want to leave room for, yes, people in college do dumb things, but also lots of college students don't wear blackface. And, and so I don't want you to feel like you just have to say, well, college, 
anyone could do blackface and and that would be understandable. It's also really okay to say like you were a grown person when you chose to do that. And as you pointed out, more importantly, you were a grown person when you were 30 and you decided that as if you were saying, man, I pulled into the wrong driveway last night. You said, man, when I was 20, I did something really uncool and it was really hurtful and I'm just going to drop it here. Don't do that. And if he (laughs) keeps kind of stressing the whole like, I didn't mean it to be racist thing, um, I I think that would also be a really important line of like, you don't get to do blackface and then say what you intended. (laughs) Yeah. You did blackface. Yeah. You, you, you wore blackface. What that exactly is did you intend? Yeah. yeah. It, 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 trying to dodge the issue by claiming you had some secret non-racist intentions is total bullshit. Um, and, and you don't have to countenance it. So mostly I would say the pro- whatever a productive conversation would look like is a productive conversation where you are honest with yourself and with him where you don't feel like it's a secret you have to keep on his behalf in order to protect his reputation or to make sure that other people think well of you. Like, you are not the person whose job it is to do image management here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wish you the best. I hope you have some friends that you can talk about this with so that, again, it just doesn't feel like this is a deep, awful secret I have to keep for him. Otherwise, will people think I'm a dupe um, or foolish or, or or wrong or that I'll be forced to break up with him if I don't want to? You truly are allowed to have whatever conversations with him you want and make whatever choice about your future relationship that you want. But this is not a secret you have to keep. You can't fix this for him. He should feel bad about his racism and he should be thinking really seriously about how he can try to um, really reckon with what he did without trying to diminish or dismiss it. And I wish you the best. I was going to say, good luck. Yeah. You know, if you want to write us back in a couple of months after you've had this conversation with him and a couple of other people, we'd love to hear from you. So please consider getting back in touch. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Okay. You know what? The nice thing is, I actually, this next one is super easy. I, I said there were no, like, straightforward ones. I feel great. Oh, my God. I love this one. I feel great giving I an love incredibly this one. straightforward. I texted my brother this morning and everything about this one. That's wonderful. And guys, guess what? It's my turn to read it. Is it? Yes. Lucky you. All right. Go ahead. Oh, I feel like I rigged this completely in my favor. All right. The subject is, I think I saw my sister in a porno. Dear Prudence. I was watching porn recently, and in a compilation video, I saw my sister. At least, I'm about 95% sure it was her. I myself am a woman and have in the past done some sex work to make some extra cash, which she knows about. I don't think I should bring up to her that I saw her in this video, which I found on a popular porn site using a popular search term, because I'm sure if she wanted me to know about her own sex work, she would have told me when I disclosed mine to her. I wouldn't and don't judge her for it. 
now I have this information and I don't know how to process it. I feel weird a bit. Like I may have violated her privacy by accidentally looking at something that had a clip of her in it. I also feel kind of gross about having seen her in such a vulnerable position, literally, that under normal circumstances, I'd obviously never have seen her in. It feels a lot like when you accidentally walk in on a stranger in a public bathroom, except she's not a stranger, and I walked in on something far less common and far more embarrassing than going to the bathroom. Where do I go from here? How does one see their sibling in porn and then just pretend it didn't happen? So the short answer is you, you saw pretend- your sibling in porn and you pretended <laughs> it didn't, didn't happen. happen. Super straightforward. You're done. Yeah. Um, Thank you for contacting Dear Prudence. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to say anything else there? I mean, I guess the thing to me that maybe I would say, which you can edit out because I think the the smallest answer is usually the right one. But the only caveat is if you know or see the porn to be coming from an exploitative or an unsafe, you know... X or something? Well, sure. Or even an organization that you, as someone who has worked in the industry, know is extremely coercive. I think if you if she seems, you know, God forbid, drugged or you suspect trafficking, of course you say something. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like you saw maybe, probably, your sister doing something that's entirely her business. And the next time you see her, you can say what's up and enjoy your macchiato and move on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, with the caveat, like if you see that it's like from a shitty ex and you think that she would want to know about it. Sure. That's one possibility. But, you know, I would also urge you to exercise caution because she may not want to know. Um, it may be that she already knows about it and has tried to, you know, like there's just so many different variables. Yeah. And because you don't say anything about like what I saw distressed me, which I think you would have included if if it had, I'm going to go ahead and assume it was pretty straightforward. Like, yep, she did some professional pornography and I accidentally saw it. That's very, you know, awkward i'm truly sorry no one wants to see a sibling maybe not no one i'm sure no, no one. like some people would be like whatever i don't mind <laughs> no one but like no one's like boy i hope i get to see that today no one needed that um so i i get the sense of like oh, well i feel so uncomfortable surely i should be able to do something but it's just like nope she knows you've done sex work you are right that if she wanted to share it with you she would have mm-hmm. doesn't mean she doesn't love you and doesn't consider the two of you close it just may perfectly understandably means she would prefer to talk about her own experience with pornography and or sex work with people she's not related to. Fair. So just feel weird about it. You didn't seek it out. It's not your fault. Um, Eventually you will stop feeling weird about it and it will not be the first thing that pops in your head uh, when you hang out. But yeah, there's there's nothing that you need to do here. Thanks for calling. Absolutely. <laughs> We've got another pretty straightforward oh my answer, God. although unfortunately I don't have a short answer for it. No, and and it's not going to be as fun. Yeah. So the subject is, can drinking be a hobby? Uh, <laughs> to which my answer would be maybe, but definitely not in this Not case. in this letter. Yeah. Um, I'll just read it without further commentary. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been married for 18 years, and over our marriage, his drinking has really ratcheted up. He has six to ten beers two to four times a week, then really goes all out on the weekend at least once. He admits that he's a binge drinker, but because he doesn't get super drunk during the week doesn't see any issues with it. Six beers gets me plastered. Six beers to him seems to have a much smaller effect. I have things that I like to do alone, things like watching trashy TV, reading, etc. A few nights a week, I want to take time to myself and shut myself away after dinner until I go to bed. 
When I do those things, he's bored. When he's bored, he wants to drink his six to ten beers. He has told me that his drinking is similar to my hobby of reading fluffy murder mystery books by myself. It's simply another way to pass the time. He stays home most of the time when he drinks, so there's not really a social aspect to it, although he's an introvert as well. What am I missing? Am I wrong in seeing an issue with the volume of beer simply because it would hit me so hard? Comparing books or reality TV to drinking just seems weird. But I can't put my finger on why this comparison doesn't work. Help? We can put our finger on why the comparison doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, the comparison doesn't work because your husband is having something in the neighborhood of anywhere from like 30 to 90 cans of beer a week. Yeah. Your husband's not a binge drinker. He's an alcoholic. Yeah, he's a straight-up alcoholic. Four times a week plus at least once on the weekends? Like, you're basically talking about five to seven days a week. Yeah, and you can say it doesn't affect him the same way it affects me. And that's fair to a certain extent. You know, one person gets hammered on two beers, one person gets hammered on four, but you are way past those levels. You know, there's often, I think, when it comes to alcoholism, this sort of, like, series of exchanges like i'll give you binge drinker as long as we can stay away from the a word yeah there's a lot of bargaining yeah there's just a ton of bargaining going on and and one thing i want to give you the gift of is you don't have to play that game your husband's an alcoholic he binge drinks a lot the reason six to ten beers don't get him drunk or or visibly drunk is because he's an alcoholic and his crazy liver is probably deeply deeply damaged um You know, as a former alcoholic myself, one of the things that happened was it was harder and harder to get drunk because I was an alcoholic. So I drank more like that's that's truly how it works. So it's not it's not a sign of like, well, he has to drink so much because only five beers doesn't do anything. It's like he he got there by drinking a lot. So all the time. Then the bigger and, and, you know, hidden question in this is what does she do now? Right. And and there's that kind of question of like, as long as we can kind of pretend it's a hobby, we don't have to do anything about it. You can't pretend it's a hobby because it's harming him. It's harming you. It's harming your life together. And like you get to ask yourself kind of a lot of different questions right now, which is like, do I want to be married to an active alcoholic? Am I cool with that? If you are and you want to find ways to get support elsewhere um, and just have that be kind of like a big thing that sits in between the two of you, you can do that. I I don't think that that's the best version of your life that you could live, but you're certainly free to just say like, yeah, my husband's an alcoholic and it is what it is. He's not ready to stop. But I would also posit if that was the route you wanted to go down, you wouldn't have been writing this letter. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the whole like, because I like to read mystery novels, my husband has no option but to drink 10 beers a couple of <laughs> – like, that's just so – I hope – like, I, we're not laughing at you. I just no. I hope you hear how ridiculous his, like, justification sounds. He drinks 10 beers because he's an alcoholic and he loves to be drunk. That's not a value judgment on whether or not he's a good person or whether or not you love him. But he's not drinking 10 beers because there's nothing else a husband can do when his wife's in the bath. You know? No, he's drinking because he has a problem. And it's not because he's an introvert. And it's not because mystery novels don't interest him or there's no other hobbies that are possible. I just like give yourself the gift of saying out loud, oh, my husband's an alcoholic. It's fine. Lots of people are. I don't I don't mean it's fine, like it's a good thing. I just mean it's fine to admit someone's an alcoholic when they are. Yeah. Please drag that monster out from under the bed when you get a good look at it. It's not gonna look nearly as scary as you think, but it is gonna be something that has to be dealt with. Yeah. So he doesn't think it's a problem. 
It's a problem. And and yet it's clearly a problem for you. So I would say the next move that you get to take is to ask, what kind of support do I need right now? Not how do I convince him it's a problem? How do I convince him to stop? How do I make sure that he cuts back to two beers a day, four days a week or whatever? Um, what do you need? And maybe that's being honest with a friend about the extent of your husband's drinking. Maybe it's being honest with a doctor about the extent. Like, I, I think that would be helpful, too, because, like, one of the things that, like, when I used to lie to my doctors about how much I drank, I was always like, man, they really need to, like, update the numbers for binge drinking because it's so ridiculously low. Like, the problem was obvious. And, like, that's not to say that there's not plenty of um, bias in the medical industry. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And, and, and that there's, like, I, I want to also be able to be open to stuff like harm reduction, truly and, and, and genuinely, um, and that there are better ways to deal with and treat addiction that aren't just like fucking get sober tomorrow or I want maximum bad things to happen to you so you can quote unquote hit bottom. That's not what I'm recommending here. But I think it would help to hear a doctor say like, yeah, that's not um, that's not like a health, like, even if he doesn't get drunk on 10 beers, that's not a healthy number of beers to drink in a day. No. And they can also, you know, give some data in terms of real tests that say this is what your liver looks like right now. Let's talk about it if yeah. he chooses to go that way. Yeah, but but so in terms of for you, maybe that means talking to a trusted friend. Uh, maybe that means talking to a therapist. Um, maybe that means checking out Al-Anon or one of the various um, secular alternatives to Al-Anon. I, I always want to be careful when I'm making those recommendations because I realize on the one hand, lots of people participate in programs like Al-Anon and AA while also being atheist or agnostic or secular or non-religious or not even spiritual in the sense of I have a belief in the supernatural. And those people are real. They exist. They get stuff out of those programs. And there's also people who say, I feel that the spiritual aspect is too closely connected with the supernatural and the religious, and it's really important to me that I find a program with a different understanding of what a power greater than yourself means. And I, I, I want listeners and readers and, and anybody who writes in to feel like both of them are good options for them. So I don't want to say either Al-Anon is only for you if you're willing to be religious or um, you, you can't even show up if you're like, there's not a God. Um, I want you to know that you have options. There are a number of ways to think about powerlessness, powers greater than ourselves. That does not mean um, any sort of supernatural God. Right. But for you, this means information and community. Those are the two things you should be looking mm -hmm. for right now. You need the information to name what the problem is, and you need the community to talk to people who are either in your situation or have been in your situation. And then you'll be able to make some real decisions. You know, and I'm sorry you're going through this, but um, it's not too late for anything to change. You you have a lot of options. And, um, you know, unfortunately, alcoholism and substance addiction is such a common problem that you are going to find people, you know, in your neighborhood even, who you'll be able to talk to. Um and and that's the next step. Right. Yeah. But the question that you're, you you get to pay attention to right now is, what do I need? Um, whether or not my husband ever stops drinking or cuts down on his drinking, um, what do I need? And, and I don't know what the answer to that question is, but you get to figure out what a good life looks like for you, regardless of whether or not he ever stops or cuts back. Um, I think the last thing that I'll add and I might be reading too much into this, so I don't know like which came first, the chicken or the egg. But you say that over the course of your marriage, his drinking has ratcheted up. And now you say that I like to do some things alone a few nights a week. I want to take time to myself. And, and he's clearly posited this as because you take time to yourself, I have to drink. 
And I'm curious if you started needing three or four nights a week to yourself when your husband's drinking started ratcheting up and that, in fact, while he wants to say, like, you take away your company from me and therefore I have no choice but to drink. I wonder whether what actually happened was his drinking got more and more out of control. He became less and less fun to spend an evening with. And the only thing you could think of to do was I'll go take some introvert time. Yeah. So good luck. If nothing else, free yourself of the like stupid shell game of is he this, is he that? Like y- you can just go ahead and say he has a drinking problem. It's it's allowed. It's clear. You can do the math. It is what it is. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you're at least taking evenings to yourself. That's that's a good thing. First step. Yeah. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. So uh, the subject of our next letter is scared to transition again. Dear, oh, it's me? Is it you? It's, no, you know what? You do it because the next one, (laughs) I have to tell you the next one is, I have a lot of personal experience with, so I'd be proud to read that one. Fantastic. Well, I've got a little personal experience with this one. Oh, damn, you kind of do. Yeah, we're great. All right, rad. Yeah. (laughs) Dear Prudence, about eight years ago, I transitioned. There was much less social awareness of queer issues in my part of the country back then, and it was a traumatic experience. I lost a lot of family and friends. Thanks to therapy, I've been able to rebuild some of my old network. Here's the problem. I actually think that I'm non-binary, a realization I've slowly come to, and would like to slightly transition back to a more androgynous look. In addition to the obvious need for support I'll have with this one, social, financial, etc., I'm dreading having to broach the topic with friends and family who were unsupportive the first time. I'd just avoid it altogether, except my isolation the first time around was a big driver of my mental health struggles during that time. Do you have a script I could use? Is it even worth bringing up? Please help me. Couple of thoughts here. One is, you know, I, I hope that you turn first to the people in your life who do support transition and your transition in particular. Um, and I think having realistic and limited expectations for the other people in your life who have only demonstrated a kind of remedial ability to show up for you in your transition is going to prove the most fruitful. Um Without going totally like you can't get water from a stone or is it blood from a stone? It is blood. You can actually get water from a stone. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I take it back. You can't get blood from a stone. Not to well actually you. No, I asked. I asked. You well, actually, you can turn a stone into a well. Ooh. Oh, my gosh. But I'm bum. I won't. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> but that, I think, is going to be the – and I realize you say you're in a particular part of the country. It, it may not be that you have tons and tons of friends local to you who are super, like, gung-ho and supportive. But um, I, I would say – 
first and foremost, reach out to friends nearby who are maximally supportive. Second, to people who might be far away but available for phone calls and text conversations. Third, I would check to see if, you know, eight years is a long time. Maybe there are now like queer and trans support groups in your area that you can stop by. Those can be really, really helpful. Um, invest in the places that you know are going to be the most like um, conducive to love and support. The second thing is, and again, I want you to be able to use whatever language you want to use. Um, I, I, I think within your own transition, given that you have found a, a new set of terms or a new type of look that you want to really stress and prioritize, um, Again, if it's important to you to say, I want to like, quote unquote, transition back, you can. I don't want to tell you that you can't. But you also don't have to think of it as like backwards momentum. If what you're simply experiencing is a clarification of a desire, um, that is, I, I think, very much um, conducive is not the quite right word. Compliance, not the quite right word. But like that's all in line with what transition is. So you don't have to frame this as, hey, everyone, sorry, I'm taking a step backwards and I apologize. I fucked up. I should have known this sooner. I went too far and now I have to course correct, which I feel like is the way that you would be inclined to present it to them now because you seem to feel like I kind of fucked up. When it you doesn't, did not. When it doesn't sound like that's the case, it sounds no. like really just like I have a stronger understanding of myself now. This is something that's you know I, I understand that androgyny and non-binary identity are not the same thing for you. That's part of what this is. Um, all, all of which is just to say, as you talk to people about understanding yourself as non-binary and wanting to make some changes to, I don't know if it's your like medical regimen, I don't know if it's changes to your appearance or dress, I don't know if it will involve any social changes, uh, like in terms of what like spaces uh, or 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 like you know public facilities you decide to use. Maybe none of that will really come into play. Maybe it will, um, but but all of which is to say. You're not taking a step back unless you want, like, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm like falling all over myself to be like, you don't have to do anything. You can do anything. It's not a step back <laughs> unless you think it is. No, but I I think what you're saying, um, so fun fact about, about me and my family, my brother was a Buddhist monk for 10 years. So we talk a lot about paths um, and, you know, the balance of, of a well-walked path and all of that. And there's no such thing as going backwards. You're really just widening your path. And if the path you're on now happens to touch the path you were on, you know, several years ago, decades ago, whatever, that doesn't mean that you've gone in a circle. It means that you have a new understanding of where you were. And because of that, you're further along in where you are. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what's going on here. You know, also, and I, I feel like this is another kind of subtle running theme in these questions today. You don't know anyone in explanation. Right. Right. You do you. So, yeah, I, I absolutely. I would say only tell people when you feel prepared to tell them um, and or because you need them to know something like either they need to like change the, the name that they refer to you as or the terms they're using for you or something that is actually important for them to know. You are also very much allowed to have like an increasingly complicated relationship to your own transition and still maintain like, here's the version I give cis people. <laughs> I think a lot of us actually have that. Um, and and. That is, in fact, totally, totally fine. So um, without like going too far off into the weeds, like I know a lot of people who within their own transition have like played around with pronouns in small groups of people, have like paused or altered their hormone dose or like taken a break from it altogether. Some of them later resume it. Some of them don't. None of them understand it as like 
uh, taking a step back in their transition. It's part of the transition. It's part of the um, moving ahead with the, the the life that they're building for themselves. So mostly I just want you to feel like transition didn't simply sign you up for the following five options and anything that doesn't meet those criteria means you have to apologize or say you're backpedaling or that you did something wrong. Yeah, your choices aren't a checklist. Yeah, this is about increased autonomy, uh, an increased sense of alignment with how you experience your own body and your own life. Um, Basically, just tell people when you feel ready, when they need to know something, and frame it as good or neutral news. Yeah. As opposed to, sorry, you all, like, because, again, it, it, it buys into this idea that transition is something that at best you get away with. Right. And people do you a favor. Right. By pretending to go along with it. And you have nothing to apologize for. Yeah. It's genuinely like you're, you're figuring this shit out for the very first time, you know, like. It's, As is a good portion of the world, P.S. You're yeah. not alone in this. Yeah. So there's there's nothing you, you know. There's nothing you need to say like, hey, I'm really sorry you like thought of me as a binary trans person for eight years because now you have to put the word non in front of it. And I, and I also just – sorry. Like my last thought is I think oftentimes binary trans people and non-binary trans people have far more in common than otherwise. That's not always true across the board. I don't want to – again, I don't want to make a lot of sweeping claims here, which is part of why I think I'm flailing so much. Um, but it, it's not this m- – I have found, at least, the difference between understanding myself as a cis person versus understanding myself as a trans person was a much bigger shift than any sort of difference between, uh, you know, do I understand myself as a binary trans person, as a non-binary trans person? What do I have in common with non-binary people? That felt much more like intuitive, immediate. Yes, we have interests in common. We have experiences in common. We have intuitive solidarity. That it's a shift in dialect rather than learning a new language or something. No, that was an excellent metaphor. (sighs) You're going to be good. Yeah. Congratulations. Figuring yourself out is awesome. All right. This next one is all you. Here we go. Um, Subject, what to do with a fridge full of useless food. Dear Prudence, I've been bulimic for several years, starting in high school. I told myself this year would be the year I finally break the binge purge cycle. I started being more health conscious and stopped buying sugary, overprocessed binge foods. My self-esteem has improved a lot, and I've returned to hobbies that I had abandoned due to depression. However, the foods I consider healthy have become increasingly limited, and now the only things I feel safe eating are raw smoothies and raw nuts. I still have a lot of other foods at home, but I have no desire to eat them. I don't want to contribute to food waste or see money go in the garbage, but it is stressful to see food that may as well be inedible just sitting there. What should I do? All right. Hmm. I'm going to tell you a few things that I think you should do. And I'm going to tell you this as someone who has been very close to where you are and who thinks all the time about what would happen if I was still there and what I would tell people at different stages in their lives on how to get out. Uh, So I apologize for getting all intense, but here's the deal. Um, When you have a problem that is physical, but that is rooted in the emotional, it is super easy to care more about doing good in the wider world than it is to care about yourself. And I love that you are conscious of food waste I love that you're conscious that not everyone has access to fresh fruits and vegetables. I love that you're aware of the life cycle of food and what happens if we don't take care of that. 
But that is not what's happening here. What's happening here is that you have a relationship to food that you know needs to change. And it doesn't need to change today or tomorrow, but you know that you're going to have to work hopefully with a professional and also with your friends and family, whoever you're comfortable talking to, um, you know, to get on on a different path with this. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is just like in the airplane when they're like, you can't put the air mask, the oxygen mask on a kid until you put it on yourself. You cannot save the planet from food insecurity until you help yourself with your own insecurities surrounding food. And I apologize if that sounded pat and needlepoint worthy, but it's it's fucking true. Um, I think, as you know, raw nuts and smoothies, while phenomenal supplements, are not a full nourishing situation. Um, it's great that you have food that you're comfortable eating, that you feel you know, comfortable putting in your body every day, and that's a great starting space. And because I'm not there with you, and also, frankly, because I'm someone who's lived this but not someone who is a trained professional, that's kind of where I'm going to stop with that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that it sounds like you're in college, just out of college, because you said a few years ago in high school. I'm going to say you're not alone, and chances are more girls and some boys mm-hmm. um, in your class, in your peer group, in your friend group are also or have also handled this. And I'm going to say that it's going to be great for you to meet up with someone and talk to them. If you're still in college, hopefully your college has some resources um, where you can go see a counselor. If you are out of college, there are a lot of low to no cost options, pay what you can situations for therapists. And since you sound like a young woman, I will tell you something else I've found, which is that finding a therapist for whatever issue you're going through is kind of like dating. Sometimes you get really lucky on the first try and you're like done. And sometimes you don't have a connection. And sometimes they're really rude and disrespectful and you're like, I can't believe I swiped right on that mm-hmm. person. Um, like it, <laughs> it's all over the map. So if you happen to find someone in the beginning of this this journey that doesn't feel right, please, please, please don't give up. Please don't say, well, I tried therapy and it didn't work for me. You tried this one person and the one person might not be a fit. Um, but please try. I, I find that a lot with with dates, um, usually it takes, you know, three people before you find one that you're like, yeah, I'm down. We could hang out again. And in terms of throwing things away and not throwing things away, I think that you need to give yourself permission to do what is good for you. The idea that you have food rotting in your house because you're afraid of throwing it out, that's not helping anyone. It's not helping the planet. Sure, it's hell not helping you. Um, The idea that um, you can't buy food because what if you don't eat it? That's that's so secondary. I think that's also just an indicator that like, you need help with this. Yes. And I realize that that can be a phrase that can feel so like you need you help. You need help. Like you've failed to be a person by yourself and you have to go like get someone else to tell you how to live. So yeah, I, I no. genuinely just mean like you need and deserve somebody to help you because you're you're at a point where it's really difficult for you to get through the day. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for adding that. And to to jump on that, I'm going to tell you something else that I've learned as a wise blonde person. Um <laughs> 
which— Okay. Yeah. I'm ready for some blonde wisdom. You're ready for some blonde wisdom. All right. It's going to have a lot of likes, but it's true. So the deal with um, needing help is that it actually is the opposite of being broken. Knowing that you need help and being able to ask for help is is making you a less broken person. And um, please understand that when you ask for help, either from your family, your friends, and or these professionals, you're not a burden. They want you to ask for help. They want to be your friend. They want to be your family member. They want to be your support system. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I don't even want you to worry about, like, whether or not you are a broken or, or an unbroken person. You're a person with a problem. Everyone's broken. Come like, on. That's, and Yeah, and, and everybody's also okay. Like, yeah. Sorry, this is so, like, content-free, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, you want me to start quoting Jewish philosophy? Because I was about to go into tikkun olam and how the whole purpose of the world is that we're broken. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. I think, frankly, I think we've got time for, like, the the hidden righteous. Like, Rad. Yeah. We're going um, into some blonde Talmud. I think— <laughs> I I think the only things that I would add to this are, I I think the phrase, I told myself this year would be the year I finally broke the binge purge cycle. broke my heart. I hear that. So hard. I want genuine, sustainable recovery for you. I believe that it's possible. And I hope that it doesn't feel um, downbeat to hear. I don't know that there will ever be a year when you break this cycle. Um, Yeah. I think progress is possible. I think recovery is possible. I think remission is possible. Um, I think part of what can be really painful about eating disorders like this one is part of you always feels like tomorrow I will hate and berate myself and discipline myself enough that I will stop forever. And then when you don't fail to live up to that, you feel even more strongly a desire to punish yourself. And I think that's part of the cycle. That is the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to say that. And and again, I don't say that to make you feel like, well, what's the point? Because I truly believe that the help that's available to you will make food less fraught and terrifying, will give you more options, more possibilities, more resources to deal with that voice of self-loathing and the desire to punish and control and manage your your body. Um, So so all of that is real and possible. But uh, anything that said, anytime that there's a voice in your head that says, I found a system that's going to stop the cycle forever. That's probably another attempt to manage and discipline yourself into thinness and perfection and, and an indicator that that is the voice of part of the eating disorder. Yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing I'll add is I'm thrilled that your self-esteem is approved. I'm thrilled that you're returning to old habits and that you feel some of your depression living, uh, lifting, I mean. I, I just also want to really acknowledge you feel safe right now eating raw smoothies and raw nuts. That's anorexia. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't want to just say like, all you've done is swapped one eating disorder from another. You should feel nothing but despair and panic and beat yourself up. But I just want to name as good as it is that you've found something that you can eat that's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. You've limited yourself to two, um, I, depending on what you're putting in your smoothie and depending on how many almonds you're eating, not necessarily, you know, it's not a. You it's, haven't it's a fixed very it. limited, and, and yeah, and fixing is not. I even know, I hate I that word. But give you, but yeah. I just, and again, I don't say this to say like you need to do perfectly tomorrow. It is okay to be struggling, and it is okay to be at a difficult place with your eating disorders. Um, but I just want to say that so that you have a sense of like this is not the best possible 
place for you. No. And you know that because you wrote this letter. Yeah. And the you that was six months ago or even three months ago isn't the you that was strong enough to write this letter. Yeah. So you're ready. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. Start seeking out a lot of help. And and I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, like, you will not necessarily find an immediately helpful therapist, doctor. No, but it doesn't treatment. mean that the help doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't mean that you don't work. It means that everyone's different. Mm-hmm. And everyone, you know, it's like, it's like your favorite color to wear. Some mm-hmm. people look great in red. Some people don't. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to seeking out a therapist, seeking out a doctor who has, like, holistic, intuitive non like repressive non-judgmental ways of helping you to deal with your eating disorders someone who makes you feel that you're really being listened to mm-hmm. that's how you'll know yeah it's not that it's going to be easy but it's going to feel there's going to feel like a trust there and and who's also aware of one of the things that happens with eating disorders is that um it's often like whack-a-mole oh for sure you know, it's like okay i've finally gotten a handle on my bulimia and now, and now i'm heavily restricting my diet yep. or i'm finally allowing myself to eat more than just two safe foods and I'm exercising compulsively. Yep. Um, One more thing I'm going to add um, is that in my own experience, and again, I can only speak for myself and my friends who I've seen in similar situations, but in my own experience, that cycle of depression and that cycle of disordered eating, whether it's orthorexia, anorexia, you name it, um, they're they're in tandem. Um, you know, they're besties and they they run together. And what I... What I would never want you to do is think that one day you wake up and you feel that food isn't the enemy, the depression is the enemy, that you're doing something wrong. Again, all of this is tied into each other, and all of this is manageable. Um, Millions of women, sadly, and men, but it does affect women on a more statistical basis, go through this every year. And... Thank God most of them come out the other side. And you will. Um, You really will because you knew enough to write this letter. And that's amazing. Yeah. And so to to think of this as something that will hopefully with time and treatment and attention recede so it is no longer the primary organizing force in your daily life. I think there's real hope for that. But to let go of the belief that it's it's going to be a cycle you can break by yourself permanently and the urge will just go away. Um, I, I think that will be helpful. I think seeking out multiple forms of professional and also like support group peer great peer-based help will be good. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to do that in tandem because sometimes if you're not careful, it can just turn into like swapping tips. Absolutely. And that can be a really dangerous element of um, peer support. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of why I think it's really helpful to also have therapeutic and medical guidance. Absolutely. I think um, right now trying to solve the general problem of food waste in the world and addressing what sounds like a pretty serious and restrictive eating disorder, that's too much to try to solve at once. So what I would like you to give yourself permission is to focus on right now your eating disorder and the part of you that says, I don't deserve to fully nourish myself. I don't deserve to eat more than two foods. You do. You do. So, you know, I understand that food waste is serious. It is not the number one issue facing you right now. And, you know, what really needs to happen is like, uh, you know, uh, all energy corporations need to become public utilities. We all need to drastically refine our ways of living. And we need to come together as like 
a, a global society and address this. Oh, yeah. But and, first, and people with serious eating disorders don't need to be on that front line of reducing food waste. No. First, you need to put on your own oxygen mask. And then once you've found, you know, a better way forward for yourself, which you are going to do, then I'll see you on the front lines. Yeah. But not until then, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you wrote in. I hope you tell someone today. Please. Because um, it's just— you know, if you're going through your day thinking, I can have this and this and nothing else, uh, I'm about to break the cycle, I'm about to do this, um, you're telling yourself that you're about to discipline and punish yourself out of something that depends on discipline and punishment. And, and that's just such a painful place to be. And I, I want better for you. And, and you deserve better. Yeah, you're going to get better. Thank you. Thank you. Whew. You know, heavy, thrilling, powerful, painful I want everyone who wrote into us this week to like have just an amazing rest of the day. Right? Like I want I want everyone to stand under a Care Bear rainbow where they're just getting like constant, you know, stars and hearts being like rained down on them. Win the lottery totally and, and you know, a free hot tub or something. Totally. Especially the bubble bath lady. Actually, she may have not said the bubble bath. She may just be I may have just like added I think that you're into picturing you are picturing her with her Agatha Christie and her Mister Bubble, and frankly, I want that for her. Right, absolutely, yeah. I want that for all of you. Oh yeah, um, thank you for writing in. Uh, you know, just Farron, thank you so much for being such a thoughtful and a luminous guest today. Oh my god, this is seriously like hashtag dream goals. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for all you do, and thank you guys for listening and writing in. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Yeah, even if you decide not to leave your husband, investing your emotional energy in groups of people where you feel less alone and more connected and more tapped in, I, I think is a really good thing. And maybe you'll meet somebody super rich who loves you and then you can just uh, bail. Amen. That was mostly a joke. Amen. I, I also want to encourage like financial <laughs> independence. Yes. But yeah, I think you you have the right to explore a lot of options. And in the meantime, to stop bending over backwards to try to get your husband to meet you halfway. Yeah. Absolutely. You can just be like, oh, he's in a shitty mood tonight. I'm going to watch a movie. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.